0: Uh, The scripture lesson today, the first of two, comes to us from the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. It's a very powerful, uh, positive message about God's kingdom coming and the reign of God and the glory of God. And I want you to think of it a little bit in light of what Sharon talked about earlier, that we also live in a world where there is not a lot of glory and there's a lot of bad stuff going on that human beings do to each other. And so try to hear them both, if you can, both the promise and the reality that we live with every day. Listen now for God's word to you. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger bringing good news, bringing the news that all is well, Proclaiming good times, announcing salvation, telling Zion, your God reigns. Voices, listen. Your scouts are shouting, thunderclap shouts, shouting in joyful unison. They see with their own eyes God coming back to Zion. Break into song, boom it out, ruins of Jerusalem. God has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. Jerusalem. God has rolled up his sleeves. All the nations can see his holy muscled arm. You can't see my muscled arm. Everyone from one end of the earth to the other sees him at work doing his salvation work. Okay, well, that was probably not the version of Scripture you're used to hearing. That's from a contemporary language translation called The Message. But it really gets at the joy and the the, uh, sense of celebration and and salvation that Isaiah is talking about. And now we turn to something that Jesus says. You know these words. In fact, you've just said them. This is from the New Revised Standard Version, the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter. Jesus says, Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world this day as best we can, in Jesus' name, amen. So, how many of you saw the Academy Awards last week? Raise your hands. Not everybody? Oh my gosh. Used to be can't-miss TV. Anyway, how many of you saw the movie that won Best Picture, Parasite? About the same number of people, wow. You're all film buffs, cinephiles, I love it. So what I loved about Parasite along with the fact that it was a a foreign film that actually had subtitles winning the Academy Award for Best film, Film, was the cinematography, the way the story was told by the camera as it shifts periodically from scenes of a family that's wealthy living in extremely high physical place, space, and then another family who is of lower status living really low, in a very low physical space. And a lot of the movie is going back and forth, physically, from those spaces to tell the story. Anyway, you have to see the film to really get what I mean, but it's funny that when I was watching the Academy Awards uh, last Sunday night on TV, and the announcer says, the TV announcer says, the Oscars are taking place at the Dolby Theater on Hollywood and Highland, made me remember something that happened to me a few years ago, an experience that I had that also had a lot to do with heights and depths. So I was driving with my family from up here, Piedmont, to uh, Los Angeles to do a a family vacation. And, you know, uh, getting to LA, as most of us know, you get kind of tired by the time you get there. So I just sort of slammed through the San Fernando Valley and. Jam pass, beautiful downtown Burbank, and the Universal Studios, and up the Cahuenga Pass. And then I saw it. I saw it. Right there in front of me on a crystal clear, moonlit night, the twinkling lights of the whole Los Angeles basin was spread out right in front of me, the top of the Cahuenga Pass. And that view from on high was breathtaking. It was spectacular. And as hard as it is for me as a native San Diego and as somebody who's lived in the Bay Area for almost 30 years, LA was a vision of heaven. Let that one sink in. Well, then we drove on down to little Tokyo where uh, uh, we went to get some sushi which is my family's favorite meal and then after the meal after we were done eating we were staying at the bonaventure hotel in downtown la which is kind of old now but you know especially if you're a little kid it's really cool because of all the glass and the elevators and the fountains and all this stuff so we were staying at the bonaventure and if you know los angeles at all downtown you know that the streets between Little Tokyo and the Bonaventure Hotel are the very definition of mean. In daylight, it's called the Wholesale District, and at night, it's called Skid Row. And so we're driving in the car, and whatever vision of heaven I had just had turned into a vision of hell. There were people just stumbling all over the street. There were, you know, tents, and sleeping bags, and bottles, and God knows what else was going on, and it was incredibly sad, incredibly sad. Just a couple of blocks away from the the gleaming, sparkling towers of downtown and the, the twinkling stars of Hollywood. Now, obviously, you don't have to go to L.A. To see something like that, all you gotta do is drive down from this church down uh, Oakland Avenue, down to 580, and you'll see a homeless encampment that stretches for block after block, and go all around this area and see tents and shopping carts and trash and, and shattered lives. And it's sad, as I said, it's really sad. So as Christians, as people who are supposed to read and reflect and believe in what the Bible says, it can be really jarring to hear those triumphant words from the prophet Isaiah. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger bringing good news, bringing the news that all is well, proclaiming good times, announcing salvation, telling Zion, your God reigns. You know, when you look at one of the homeless encampments along MacArthur Boulevard or over in Emeryville or where else you happen to be, it can make you wonder, what does that phrase mean? God reigns. Or when you pray like we just did thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what on earth are we really asking for? What is the kingdom? And what is God's will for your life? Well, first thing I want to say about this, just briefly, is, is about God's will for your own personal life. Now, despite what you may have read in a book or heard from some you know, sparkling TV preacher, God's will does not consist of a detailed, individualized plan for exactly what your life is supposed to be. Who you're supposed to marry, what job you're supposed to get, where you're supposed to live, all of that kind of stuff. Instead, the point of life is its general direction. Not finding out the details. God doesn't really care. God gives us what God cares about. God gives us each, each one of you, a special, a specific, your own set of skills and passions. And your job is to take what you've been given and to seek to fulfill God's desires. And what does God desire? The Bible's pretty clear. Prophet Micah says, what does your Lord desire? He says to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's what God desires. That's God's general will, God's general desire. So, you know, you and I have a great deal of freedom to live in such a way, whatever it is, that honors God and that shows love and concern for other people. You can think of it like this, your life, every single one of your life is a blank canvas. And God gives you a set of brushes and some paints, and your job, your task, your joy, is to paint. That's what God's will is for your life. And that brings us to the kingdom. Now, you might remember if you were here last week, Dr. McNabb reminded us that the kingdom of God is not just something out there, something far away from us in space or in time. It's not just in heaven after we die, or it's not just in the future, you know, when Jesus comes a second time to set everything right on this earth. As Christians, we do believe that both of those things are true, but they only get at part of what it means for God to reign in your life and in my life. The philosopher Dallas Willard wrote that, what is important to understand that there is that there is no then or when to the kingdom of God. For, as the gospels show us again and again, this reign is a current, progressing, maturing reality which means that Jesus rules today. And that rule is totally unlike any other kind of rule you can imagine. There are no borders, no boundaries, no territories, no power structures or privileged people who can exemplify all the time that Jesus is Lord. The kingdom is both now and not yet. It's a present reality and it's a future expectation. So what is it? Well, I often say at Bible studies or just other conversations I have with people that the kingdom of God is found wherever and whenever and in whomever God is in charge. The kingdom of God exists, it is found wherever and whenever and in whomever God is in charge. That means it's in heaven, that means it's in the future, it also means it's all around us and within us, right now, if only we have the eyes to see. It's in feeding the hungry Healing the sick, freeing the captive, it's challenging the powers of oppression and fear and hatred and polarization, it's caring for the vulnerable, it's loving the unlovable, it's standing for justice and community in a world that honors selfishness and greed. You've all heard that before. I hope you have, in church of all places. That's what we're praying for. When we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, of course, just saying those words isn't enough. You also have to live them as if God really is in charge of your life. And it's not easy. Because the view from on high that is seeing the world from God's perspective or through the eyes of Jesus the view from on high can mess up the way you usually look at things me too for example in 2013 a uh, uh, Canadian sculptor devout Catholic guy named Timothy Schmaltz he created a sculpture it depicts Jesus as a homeless person sleeping on a park bench His face and his hands are obscured, hidden under a blanket. And the only thing you can really see that identifies him as Jesus are his feet. Where you see holes from where he was crucified, where the nails went in. And that bronze sculpture has been described as a visual translation of Jesus telling his disciples, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you also did it unto me. So... Uh, The artist offered to donate the uh, sculpture, which is called Homeless Jesus, first to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City on Fifth Avenue, but they rejected it because, quote, appreciation wasn't unanimous. And then he went to St. Michael's Cathedral in Toronto where he was told that the statue doesn't match our architectural aesthetic. Which led the artist to comment how ironic it is that homeless Jesus can't find a home. But eventually it did. Uh, The the first uh, version of the sculpture now stands in front of the Jesuit School of Theology in Toronto. And there are also eight full-size reproductions spread throughout Canada, the USA, Scotland, and England, at other churches, other places. In fact, there's one copy in front of St. Albans Episcopal Church in Davidson, North Carolina, where the rector, David Buck, says they put it up because, quote, this is a relatively affluent church To be honest, and we need to be reminded ourselves that our faith expresses itself in active concern for the marginalized of society. It's a sort of Bible lesson for those who are used to seeing Jesus depicted in traditional religious art as the Christ of glory, enthroned in finery. There's nothing wrong with that, but we believe that the kind of life Jesus really had was, in essence, as a homeless person. So taking the view from on high, seeing the world as God sees it through the eyes of Jesus, involves lowering our own sights to ground level, where people really live, where we really exist. Lowering our sights to the streets, where we, we walk down the streets and we go to work and we we meet other people and we do all sorts of other things, and yes, some people actually sleep on the streets. It also means getting educated on why it is that so many more people are living on the streets these days. In fact, last week I was at a public forum down at a church in Oakland, and the topic was the housing crisis and homelessness. by the way, um, in May, we're gonna have some of the speakers that spoke at that church come here to speak at a Piedmont forum. Uh, we'll send out more information probably next month. But anyway, at this, this, this forum on, on housing, I heard some statistics that blew me away. For example, homelessness in Oakland has grown by 47% in the past two years from roughly 2,700 individuals to 4,700 individuals. And, you know, honestly, there's lots of reasons for why this is happening in the Bay Area and other places in the country, too, and I'm not going to get into it. But the main driver here in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, is the lack of affordable housing. By far, you can look at the statistics, look at the studies, that's by far the single most important reason for the increase in homelessness. For example, did you know that rents have increased by 108% since 2010 in Alameda County, while incomes have increased by only 60% on average? And this is the statistic that really got me. This means that a household would need to earn $85,000 a year to be able to afford the median price two-bedroom apartment in Oakland. $85,000 a year. Sounds like a lot of money to me. The solution, of course, is to provide more housing. But since 2000, where the Bay Area has needed approximately 1 million more housing units to meet the demand of, of an increasing population. Our population has increased by 15% in that time. We have only built 300,000 market rate units and 40,000 affordable ones, which is a gap of around 700,000 units. So. When you look at the housing crisis and all the lives that it touches in so many ways, when you look at it as a Christian, whether you're a landlord or a tenant or anyone else, it doesn't matter who you are, what your politics are, where you live, when you look at it as a Christian, you realize that something has to change. Which is why I love what they did last week down at First Presbyterian Church Hayward. Did you hear about this? Some people in Piedmont were even involved in this. They opened up, First Pres. Hayward, six tiny houses or homes in the church parking lot to help homeless individuals transition from homeless to housed. Each of the units cost $10,000. All of the, all of the, the money raised was, was raised from individuals and uh, Uh, corporations and residents can live in these little tiny homes for up to 18 months they get mental health care and job training they pay a modest rent and when they graduate from the program when they're ready to move on to more uh, long-term housing they get what they paid in rent back so that they can afford first and last month's rent where they're going awesome idea kind of stuff churches should be doing And I'm not suggesting we do the same thing back here in our tiny little parking lot at Piedmont Community Church, although we could. We do build houses for lots of people in Mexico who are in need, and and that's great too. But you know, there's so much need right here, all around us. So what's it gonna take to meet the demands, to meet the need? Not just for the church, but for you and me as individuals, as followers of Jesus. What is it going to take? And not just about housing or homelessness, also about sex trafficking and immigration and climate change and whatever else you can think of, all the sorts of things that are going on in this world all around that show us that life is out of balance according to God's desires. Well one thing that's going to change, or one thing it's going to take is a change in our vision. The theologian Tom Wright calls what we need binocular vision, binocular vision, in which we see the world with the love of the Creator for his spectacularly beautiful creation. And we see it with the deep grief of the Creator, for the battered and battle-scarred state in which the world finds itself. You put those together and bring the binocular picture into focus, and the love and the grief join into the Jesus shape, the kingdom shape, the shape of the cross. Now, sometimes you get this binocular vision from out of the blue. You just have no idea where it comes from, this view from on high. For example, a couple years ago, I think I may have shared this story with one or two of you. I was uh, walking down Piedmont Avenue, going to the old Starbucks to get some coffee, which of course Starbucks is closed now, probably because the rent's too high. And a guy on the sidewalk says to me, got any change? I'd seen the same guy many times before, probably just walked by, maybe said hi. I said no, and I didn't really have any change, and so I walked in, paid for my coffee with my debit card, and when I came back out, for some reason, I have no idea why, some reason, I said to the guy, I really wish I did have something I could give you, but I don't really carry around cash with me that much these days. And then he said to me with a straight face, that's okay, I take credit. Yeah, I mean, he said that, and he was joking, and we both laughed about it. And then I said to him, you know, thanks, you just made my day. And he said in response, you made my day too. And as I thought about it later on, what made the day for both of us wasn't that I gave him a handout. I didn't, didn't give him any money at all. And it wasn't just that we laughed together, which was really nice. It was that in that moment, for some reason I cannot explain, I got binocular vision. I could see the beauty, the humanity in this person, and I could also see where he was in life. And somehow it all came together, and I could treat him as a human being not just as a stereotype or as a statistic. And then he could see me, not just as a mark, but as a guy who actually wanted to share a joke at a coffee shop. Just a simple interaction. Kind of stuff can happen all the time, any day, to any one of us. But you know, God's grace strikes at the most surprising times. And for two people living on drastically different levels in society according to the standards or the, the rules that we supposedly live under, it was a moment of clarity and commonality and communion. So I hope I get plenty more of those moments of binocular vision and uh, the view from on high and can see other people and be seen as Jesus, or or however you want to put it. And I really hope and pray that you get plenty of those experiences, too, and that our church becomes a place, which it is already, but becomes even more, a place that leads us into spaces, high and low and everywhere in between, where we can see each other with the eyes of Jesus. Amen.